That was a recording of Rasul Anbai, a renowned vocalist of the Hindustani classical tradition from the archives of the All-Pakistan Music Conference. The APMC was a big part of the life and work of Pakistani artist Lala Rook, the protagonist of our episode today. I'm your host, Horal Kasimi, artist, curator, director, and president of Sharjah Art Foundation, and you're listening to our podcast, Speaking of Art. Though she passed away in 2017, the legacies of Lala Rook's four-decade artistic, political, and pedagogical career continue to influence new generations of publics in Pakistan and beyond. As a person, however, she was deeply private, almost as enigmatic as her images could be at first glance. This is the duality of the known and the unknown Lala Rook, which we hope to explore in this episode. Today we'll hear from students and friends of the late artist as well as from Natasha Jinwala who, with myself, co-curated Lala Rook's first major retrospective in the round. To briefly introduce Natasha Jinwala, she is a curator, writer and editor focusing on contemporary art and visual culture. She's artistic director of Columbuscope in Sri Lanka, associate curator at Gropiusbau in Berlin and one of Sharjabaniel 16's co-curators. Sharjabaniel 16 will open February 2025. Welcome to Speaking of Art, Natasha. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, Hur. Natasha, to conjure up an image of Lala Rook's art for our audience, I want to refer to our curatorial note where we say, the shaping of temporality in her work, whether it be in her drawings, photographs, prints, or video art, takes varied forms, the gradient of moonlight, a rising wave, the tracing of coastal sands, a collective reverberation in solidarity demonstrations, the lucid contours of a living body. I think that sums up her imagery in quite a nice way. But before we get into her practice any deeper, I want to remember Lala Rook as a person and our first encounters with her. I would say my first memory of Lala was during Sharjah Biennial 12 in 2015, curated by Unjichu, where Lala participated. I remember having a probably the longest conversation while we stood in line waiting for a, a kebab outside the, the food stand. Um, it was really great to hear her conversation also at the March meeting and to have her works in our collection that continue to be part of our ongoing exhibitions. Do you have a memory of your first glimpse of a Lala Rook image? Yeah, I think um, for me, it was definitely um, encountering Lala's work uh, before being in her presence and um, seeing her work in Dubai via Grey Noise and at India Art Fair, uh, also via the gallery, was something that left a haunting imprint. When I finally met her, that was in 2015. And I think the reason why she also sort of built, you know, a connection was because we had this uh, conference at the NCA in Lahore, um, which was um, realized as part of My East is Your West, a project by the Gujral Foundation. I think this 
you know, modality of South Asian artists working together at Venice and being in the campus of NCA, that became an entry point in a way to even access her. Um, and I'm really grateful uh, to also gain her presence in that way, like through entering Lahore and entering this a space of pedagogic connection that she has been so, so crucial for. Yes, thank you for that for sharing that story with us, Natasha. Um, I also spent a lot of time in Lahore and it gave me also another, it was after uh, Lala passed away, but it was very important for me to see the spaces that she worked in and the work that she inspired in Lahore as well. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, well, we know that she used to take pride in being an old Lahori, and I want to begin by painting a picture of her growing up in Lahore in the 1960s. For example, she grew up seeing poets like Faiz Ahmed Faiz perform and being taught by great art teachers like Anna Malka Ahmad and uh, Khalid Iqbal. What impact do you think this rich cultural heritage had on her formative years? I'm very conscious that I'm speaking to this particular aspect as an outsider. So I want to acknowledge that. And at the same time, realize that on one hand, Lala's space of inspiration from childhood was something that she was so generous to share. And it was part of her life mission to sort of actually build bridges for those connections that were so crucial to her. And so when we think about musicality and the presence of great teachers of um, of music, I think it enabled her, of course, at a very young age to uh, be amidst maestros like Roshanara Begum and Bade Gulam Ali. And there are photographs of her um, with them. They make a presence in their private, in her private space in the domestic realm, as much as in the gardens, on stage. And so at least the way I sort of visualize it, this dense kinship of um, art, music, and various forms of cultural um, knowledge uh, circulating in her midst is, is very much um, through the space of the home as something private, but also as the space of hospitality. One of the things I wanted to mention and that we are really excited about is showing this portrait by Sadekin of Lala. And um, so I think she had this way through her um, presence that was constantly also breaking the boundaries of genre to attract these great teachers. And so I see her in that mode also in the way that she embraced Sufism and the way that she embraced a certain kind of sacred modality, but very much staying the activist and yet keen to hear oral storytelling in that space of the mystic and the cosmological. And so I really sense her as that person who on one hand built pedagogic, uh, not, pedagogic anchors but also constantly wanted to escape and break the boundaries that are geopolitical, but also then relational within the social conditions of Pakistan. One of the great musicians Lala Rook listened to in her early years was Roshan Arabegum. Roshan Arabegum co-founded the All Pakistan Music Conference at the invitation of Lala Rook's father, Hayat Ahmad Khan, who, as we learn in this episode, had a deep influence on her. Here we hear Roshan Arabegum accepting Pakistan state honor, the Tamra AMTAs, followed by a clip of her singing. Music Conference, Lahore. 
تمغہ امتیاز ملنے پر جو پرخلوص مبارکباد مجھے آپ نے دی ہے اس کی میں تہہ دل سے شکر گزار ہوں It's interesting because I think, like you said, we're continuously uh, discovering new things about Lala through all the interactions of people who are close to her. So I think it's always going to be an ongoing uh, history or story to be told. To get another glimpse of the context in which she became an artist, let's hear from her niece, Maryam Rahman, as she shares with us what Lala Rook's formative years were like. Her father was someone who came from a religious background and he completely diverted to passion. You know, I wouldn't even say interest, a passion for the classical arts, especially music. And then he went on to um, form the All Pakistan Music Conference and he spearheaded it. And it's still the leading sort of platform for serious classical music in Pakistan today. So there was a lot of interest in indigenous classical arts of South Asia, right from when she was very little. Simultaneously, there was a lot of exposure to travel because he was also a mountain climber and everything that he did was sort of like the family was included, four sisters, mother, they were included. There were swimmers, so he taught them. He taught his daughters, and including Lala, they were all, all the sisters were provincial level swimmers and they were traveling and trekking every summer and this was the time when trekking was not you know it was not easy to get to these places there were no highways there were no roads it would so they would literally come back after three months so I think in terms of her language you know the the visual vocabulary and also the content which is this sort of like connection this very sort of simple connection with nature. He encouraged them to learn other visual arts like calligraphy, you know, the purest forms of calligraphy, of drawing, painting, etc. So there was a lot of awareness of that, uh, not only that genre of classical arts, but also the political awareness of being a colonized people and freeing oneself from that and connecting with one's intuitive, intrinsic, indigenous arts. And so I remember her speaking about this, that, you know, the our original arts, the arts, the art of the book, for example, is all paper-based, you know, there's no canvas. So canvas was imposed by the British, you know, when they set up art schools to teach us how to draw and paint. There was always a political awareness. There was a lot of reading, 
um she was an avid reader so there was a lot of reading and questioning and introspection always i think all, all of this lends to uh what culminated into her um particular style and her expression Well, speaking of an artistic education, we know that being part of different universities in Lahore and Chicago uh, was really important to her. Let's talk a little bit about the 1970s when Lala went to study at the University of Chicago. This other period of rich cultural immersion for her was when she was surrounded by art movements like minimalism and conceptualism, the political turn to second wave feminism and experimental composers like John Cage. While she was in Chicago, she began this practice of life drawing, which she then continued in Pakistan, that ended up having a spareness and cerebral quality to it. But she also admitted to feeling quite isolated in terms of her artistic practice. Natasha, can you tell us about the early Conte drawings she made during this time, which have rarely been exhibited before this show? Yeah, thanks for that. I think um, her time at the University of Chicago is again... that sort of unfolding and reckoning with fragments of anecdotes that we have and now again thanks to the estate the kind of um decisive exploration of literally her assignments um in university her relationship to photography way in which she grappled with the camera again as a tool to observe choreography spatial distribution there are these incredible little um moments in which she's capturing literally the the movement of of people at a certain kind of speed with a certain sort of way in which to position the camera um again as a tool of drawing as a as a tool of motion and i found that uh really incredible and that's also of course part of the exhibition and it's never been shown before literally like the conte drawings have been in certain group exhibitions but again not presented in this sort of uh expanse and that is also because of lala's uh approach to them as a life practice that she uh looked at as a form of riyaz as a form of very private um daily observation turning to life drawing through the camera and through um through graphite is what we see in this early time of the 1970s she also photographed a uh, a black woman choreographer and i find that um the way in which she observed um this choreographer was something that perhaps is a prelude to how she then drew um the body which was often also the male body And so it's not this gendered approach really but a consistent rigor uh, of the flowing line um and perhaps also in um relating to to rhythm as a fundamental aspect of the living breathing body. Since we're talking about Chicago, I also find it quite quite key to even speculate around Lala's relationship to jazz there are people particularly who come to mind like Wadadalio Smith and Anthony Braxton who have a practice around improvisational music and scoring as a form of drawing and so i've been thinking a lot about how uh, their practice of drawing scores or as 
what Adalio Smith says, language scores, could perhaps um, in some way, in a sort of free-floating parallel universe way, connect to Lala. Because as you said, she was isolated in a sense. And yet that realm of music continuously flowed in the city of Chicago. So somewhere at a granular level, it was present. I, I find it important that we um, also perhaps think about those uh, kinds of resonances in her midst. And we know for different reasons that other artists who have been close to Lala have also been present in Chicago at later years, whether it's Bani Abdi or Mohanad Kader. And again, these aren't um, linear uh, connections and yet they are serendipitous and these are people in her midst. So yeah, I'm, I just wanted to recall that. In an interview with Maria Lukman, her friend, student and fellow teacher at the National College of Art in Lahore, Lala Rook talked about the studio practice as a daily riyaz. Let's hear what Maria has to say about what the artist meant to her. I didn't really know Lala's artwork as a student. Um, it was something which was very private. She was my thesis supervisor, so I knew her. I knew her as an activist. You know, I used to be a bit of a firebrand and I was always in trouble. And I was always getting bailed out by likes of Lala, who would be like, it's okay, you'll be fine. We got on uh, in terms of our politics. Um, and she introduced me to Lahore, to her world. She introduced me to lawyers, activists, dancers, grassroots workers, musicians. You know, she sort of really, I became embedded in her world. And in terms of practice, you know, um, Lala was... Again, you know, she was very, very studious. She was wanting, wanted you to do, do better, right? So I could not sit still in the studio. And I said, you know, I, I can't and I need to go out and I need, need to take photographs. And Lala said, fine, then why don't you do that? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be in the painting department. And she said, well, uh, that doesn't mean you can't take photos. Um, I will do the signing and whatever. So then I ended up spending you know, months in the dark room, uh, which was supposed to be in the design department, but not in the fine art department. I would be on the streets all the time. Um, I ended, started, started making video with Lala. I was projecting video uh, on my paintings. Um, I started drawing on photographic paper. I had no idea she'd been doing these things. And then with all of this, I end up at the Slade. Uh, she was extremely proud. Uh, and again, there I studied film and video and, you know, things like that. And I came back and I joined her. And then we built, I helped her build the MA program. Um, I continued working with her for about six years. You know, teaching like a studio seminar with her, tutoring, just imagining what a graduate program could be thinking about, you know, what kinds of students um, should be uh, coming out of such a program. What is work about? What is it to be an intellectual practitioner? What does it mean to be a political practitioner? And one thing, 100% she had, you know, in the middle of whatever NCA something, and she would say, we've got a phone call, people are gathering, let's go. Like, okay, we're going, let's go, you know, because of where we were. So there was, she was like, there's no excuse, we are right on the mall road. 
you know and and now there's a phone call and it's time to go okay let's go you know um nude i think that's what you learn from somebody like lala you know is that we all have to kind of do our bit because otherwise nothing is going to get done enjoying this episode Why not listen to our sister series Biennial Bites where we hear from some of the most prominent artists practicing today. For more information on all exhibitions and events at Charge Art Foundation, please visit our website or follow us on Instagram at Charge Art. You're listening to Speaking of Art. Welcome back to Speaking of Art, the official podcast of Charge Art Foundation. We're in conversation with Natasha Jinwala about known and unknown aspects of Pakistani artist, activist and educator Lala Rook. Natasha, let's talk about Lala Rook the feminist. This is something she was very well known for. In 1981, she co-founded the Women's Action Forum and developed a visual vocabulary of resistance through the posters she made, the photographs she took and the screen printing workshops she conducted in her garden. She even produced a screen printing manual called In Our Backyard which gives us a sense of her desire for people to empower themselves. Can you give us some examples of the impact of those activist materials and how this practice connected her to a wider network of feminists in the region? There's so much that um we could say within sort of this aspect of the history of the Women's Action Forum and her role as someone who formed key south asian alliances that we are all still um growing from but since you mentioned in our own backyard and we also want to activate that manual as something that is pretty much that a blueprint for activism for continuous curriculum building i could possibly speak to that aspect when she first told me about in our own backyard which was at a very late moment in her life uh visiting her home she pointed to the garden so i was in her home and she pointed to how th- that garden particularly has been the space of um feminist encounter and of producing these visual and graphic vocabularies i've only slowly started to trace where specific posters that were made as a result also of that manual how those connect with um moments in pakistan i think this is more known of course with the law of evidence etc how she decisively moved very quickly together with many other women so it, there is important to say shared authorship obviously in these posters and um calendars and pamphlets etc and the centers around lala are the ones who have preserved the memory and I think it's really important to not see them as sort of art objects and we I think actively need to reassess that status and I think we are by choosing to introduce that material through the manual um to younger people today that I I I would just say that uh the posters and and this practice of print culture really uh, as being foregrounded within the women's movement is something that happened very consciously also within places like Sri Lanka uh, where she went to do workshops in India where she worked uh, with Seva uh, which is again just such a pioneering institution for self-employed women in the informal labor sector 
And many of the women who have led these organizations in South Asia are also no longer with us or are in very frail conditions. So the memory of Lala through in our own backyard and through her being an archivist and a producer of this kind of graphic vocabularies um, and print culture is something that uh, that I, I hope this exhibition that we're doing will really uh, give further voice to. And I found a, a really um, brilliant interview uh, that Lala gave in Zuban in New Delhi just after she was presented at the Sharjah Biennial. And she spoke particularly about the erasure of the curriculum um, at the time of Ziaul Haq and sort of this rewriting of textbooks. And then the sort of way in which women were not allowed to produce their own evidence against anti-women laws. And so I, I really feel like in this exhibition, we are, I believe for the first time, this notion of the curriculum and radical pedagogy and the kind of encounters that she had as a South Asian feminist are being shown alongside. And previously there is there has been a tendency to set them apart because she made time for them in different ways in her life. Thank you, Natasha, for shedding light on the importance and continued relevance of Lala Rook's feminist art. She often spoke about how, for much of her life, her art and her activism were separate. In an audio work she produced called Subhe Umid or Dawn of Hope, the two sides finally come together. Let's listen to this work from 2008, made at the time of the lawyers' protest in Lahore and Karachi. You'll hear slogans mingling with the noise of the streets, accompanied by the voice of musician Sara Zaman as she sings a classical rag. Natasha, we can't talk about Lala Rook without mentioning the sea and her love of the horizon. Those who knew her say that during her travels around the world, whenever she had time, she would sit by the ocean. This interest in the bodies and surfaces of water appears to find its way into her art in the form of waves and lines. Can you tell us more about how this manifests in her work? I see her also very much as a traveler. Uh, and uh, this is something I'm, I'm still learning about about how her family really took her on journeys um, across Pakistan. So she really learned about the landscape in a very uh, visceral, direct way. Her relationship to the mountains and the sea developed through those travels within Pakistan. Um, but also then later, you know, continuing to make these journeys um, across South Asia, in Afghanistan, in Turkey, in Iran as well, as a, as a, as a, way of also then contesting geopolitical orientation 
And so I I, I found it um, really crucial to sort of now um, start to be able to plot how within each of her forays in the region, um, but also her movement uh, across Pakistan, uh, how that can be plotted through water-based relationality. And you see that in early works like Hara Samandar, Hieroglyphics, um, Roshni Oka Shaher. Um, these are all uh, moments where the hieroglyphics are ways in which she um, expresses her relationship uh, to the calligraphic line, um, to the spaces of water and of blackness. Um, and I think the way we are also relating to these um, are um, quite expansive in comparison to how um, her relationship to um, the ocean has been portrayed before because it was very segmented by particular solo moments. And now we really have access to a great breadth of photography and drawing that could relay that. So in 2017, Umar Bhatt, founder of Grey Noise and also one of Lala Rook's students, exhibited her works featuring waterscapes from the subcontinent, such as rivers, seas and coasts. We talked to him about what the artist meant to him. My earliest memory of Lala's work was when I was a student in 2001 at the National College of Arts. Uh, I saw her survey exhibition at Gallery NCA uh, in the college. And I think that trigger was that exhibition, which was the first, I would say, visual uh, sort of dictation I got uh, of this abstract works, uh, which uh, I was not familiar with, if someone even could practice like that in South Asian context. I knew Lala more as a friend because my, Lala's niece, Mariam, was in my class. And I met Lala through Mariam. And we knew that she is um, uh, the, the disciplinary committee sort of uh, head of the National College of Arts for Students. So that's how I met her. And then I had seen that show in 2001, the same year was my degree show. And I was really working towards my thesis project. I was in printmaking. And I took an appointment and I met Lala in her house thrice. These are early, more close conversations because she want, she, she accepted to meet me. And, and that's not just me, that's many people she met like this in private, not in, in at work. So it would be a meeting, which would be a timed meeting uh, in her home, in her lounge. And you had you were given that hour or half an hour, 45 minutes where she would sit down and I showed her my project. And that's how I, she understood the sensitivity in my practice because I was unable to tell her at that time that I, her work did something, brought some confidence in looking at abstraction and also this um, non-narrative abstraction, right? And I intentionally, as a student, was trying to develop a body of work which dealt with minimalist abstraction. And I thought that she was encouraging. I also spoke about what I was doing, which might not fit the, the framework of what the degree show should be. Lala was central in, in supporting that, saying that this is important. Sagar became a desire to look at a body of uh, negatives and photographic works. Those Lala considered um, 
or kept as a memory of a trip or, 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 or an excursion. And while I was looking at the negatives, I realized there were sequences of uh, different uh, water bodies photographed. But for me, uh, the negotiation of uh, light and which we extended upon after I spoke to her, she then started to really address, say, the light of South Asia, the water, the, the sunlight, uh, to compare to what she photographed, the sunsets in North Sea in Europe. And then we only looked at South Asia. We spoke about the depths of water. Uh, we spoke about um, the horizon line, which, uh, which, which in a way also played somewhere in her hieroglyphics series, which was the music score that she started to dictate or started to draw. And you see that music has a wave frequency, the high notes and the low notes, right? So there was always this line drawn and the works were then built around listening to the sound. So the depth of the water, the unknown, and then when you look above, which is the sky, the unknown. The trust that she had in me was purely because I, I, I understood her. The more I knew her, the lesser I knew her somehow, right? Uh, because um, I unfortunately uh, discovered, maybe it's the case with uh, most people that when she passed, uh, I, I, I understood her much deeper. Lara to me was a protector, somebody who protects you, you know? It is something which I believe in my profession, no one else did. She protected me and she protected many people. And when I say protection, if, if you really extend it, the protection was a critique of your existence in the world and, and just not protecting you as an entity, but also making you aware of how you protect other things around you. That was what Lala was for me. I want to come back to Lala Rook's lifelong relationship to music. Her father founded the All-Pakistan Music Conference in 1959, and she spoke about a childhood infused with those sounds, listening to some of the best musicians of that era in her own home. Can you talk about how this interest in the structure and subculture of classical music finds its way into Lala Rook's imagery? And can you tell us how it all came together in the work called Rupak on view at Sharjah currently? Towards the end of her life, um, Lala was spending a lot of time uh, reviewing materials from the All-Pakistan Music Conference. She was looking back to photographs. She was looking back to her own CD covers that, that she designed. When we met in Kassel, she gave me a CD of Sara Zaman. And this, again, now are just symbolic uh, moments that I reflect back on and try to stitch them up as, you know, part of her own coded uh, behavior on where she wanted you to pay attention when she met you, when she spoke to you. And so she said, please get familiar with Sara Zaman. She's very important to me and for WAF, but also for this particular way in which um, classical music was approached through the forms in which uh, particularly, as far as I understand, um, all Pakistan Music Conference became this confluence uh, 
for musicians from various walks of life, class, um, religion, sort of really becoming a platform of commonalities um, and uh, taking great joy, um, pleasure and learning in cultures of music. She also was very clear uh, after being invited for Documenta uh, that she wanted to do something different. She had this vision of a throbbing pulse. She was very clear that uh, she was intrigued by technology, but she uh, did not want to become uh, someone in service of it as an artist. And so she approached um, the medium of animation very playfully, but also cautiously. She was very clear that in Rupak, drawing would still be the basis on which the then the animation would appear the way that the composition would sort of take over, take flight. So that is also uh, why we have these 88 drawings in Rupak. I won't go into further detail uh, about that specific work, but again, it's just such a complex tal that I think is very conducive to this sort of way in which um, it uh, brings us to this uh, approach of almost like a video score, perhaps. And it feels like the distillation of her approach to the use of carbon paper, to reflecting on the night, to so many of the early hieroglyphics, which is also why um, when the work was actually shown in Athens, we surrounded it by earlier works of hers, uh, giving a lot of distance, but giving these as reference points, this move from drawing um, to a video score. So obviously, as Lala practiced drawing in this way that she was reflecting on it as an accretion of time, but also of the counterpoint, the counterpoint is crucial to understanding the melodic structures of Tal's, the percussive is an element that we see recurring in her drawing. When we talk about calligraphy, we perhaps cannot talk about it without thinking of percussion because it is also the meeting between the paper and the kalam. And before she uh, came to the selection of the Tal Rupak, she had already also made these drawings which reflected on other melodic structures and ragas in her drawings, which we are also showing uh, once again uh, in this exhibition. Thank you for telling us about the work, Natasha. It's amazing to see how even towards the end of her long career, that fascination with music persisted. The artist was involved in archiving the APMC's recordings as well. We've included some of these in the show at Sharjah. Let's take a listen to a piece from the archives. This is Ustad Sadak Alimando playing the clarinet. Thank you. 
We now have a sense of Lala Rook's artistry, activism, and pedagogy. But let's also hear from her family. Here is Lala Rook's niece, Maria Rahman, once again, reflecting on her memories of her aunt. So the first memories of her working was, it was a lot of play. That's what her process was. It wasn't linear. It was, there was a lot of music, always. So there was reggae music, you know, I'd ask her to play the Women's Action Forum anthems. We'd hear them in the, at the protests, and that was, you know, kind of live, and all these women singing. And uh, she had a huge music collection. So I'd make requests and we'd play songs and we'd play music. And then there was a lot of drawing. There was, you know, unlimited art supplies. Once she'd identified what kind of paper she liked to draw on in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, she had bought like a lifetime worth um, supply, which I'm still using. And that was her. I mean, she decided that about her. Her Kolapuris, for example, she'd made a trip to Kolapur. She'd bought a lifetime supply of Kolapuris. Okay, done. Check. You know, footwear checked. Drawing paper checked. No need to waste time on that now. Clothes, like, you know, she wanted to wear handlooms. So she'd bought like yards of susi and khadar and fabric which she thought was, you know, pure cotton or handloom. And then she would just continue to sort of like just make her clothes from that. And then she, you know, so she, she had her drawing workshop studio next, which was a garage. It was previously a garage and next to it was her screen printing garage. And so a lot of times when I would make a drawing, she would go and print it for me. She would still screen print it for me. She would do it on a piece of cloth or a piece of paper. And then, you know, that was so exciting. We made a cards out of it. And then she had her photography darkroom, which was across the courtyard. And this was all behind her, her parents' house. And then there was the garden. So it was a very expansive sort of studio space. And uh, in the sense that it was um, uh, very interactive. She spent a lot of time in the garden. And I think that was sort of like equally nurturing to the work because the gardening was part of the process and sitting and watching the birds and, you know, smoking cigarette breaks. And that was all part of her process, really. That sort of input-output and that ebb and flow and that really sort of like that quiet time. And then there were breaks when she would not be working and she would be on the roof flying kites. Uh, even when she was much older, even in her later years, I remember they banned Basant, the festival, the kite flying festival. The government banned it. And so the police was going around looking for people who were flying kites. So they rang her doorbell and she came down and they were sort of like, they looked at her and they were a bit, you know, apologetic. Uh, sorry, madam, but some boys being flying kites in this uh, vicinity, you know. So she says, oh, okay, I'll keep a lookout. <laughs> but it was her and she, you know, went back and she was very sort of proud that she never once bought a kite. Uh, all her kites were stolen because you have, you know, matches and then you you get the other person's kite. You know, you run across the street and you pick up the kite and you won it. So there was a lot of element of joy and inspiration. And I think that's how she allowed her, her process to unfold through decades of daily practice and just life drawing and sort of committing to that. 
committing and having the sort of like the faith and the openness and the surrender in the process. Finally, Natasha, let's talk about the show in the round. I'm reminded of an interview in which Lala Rook said that the calligraphic form she studied called the Khat Asalus is derived from the circle. Let's talk a bit about these ideas we're invoking and what unknowns the show will reveal about her practice. When drafting an idea for the title um, of the exhibition, it felt as if while Lala's practice refuses to be contained, um, I try to think very much with you in terms of how SAF also, I believe, is this space for circular knowledge and circulation of practices in this abundant way. And it felt like it is from here that we can release a Lala exhibition that brings forth this sort of roundness, this um, way of circumambulating her life practice, um, because it's also very innate to what Saf does in terms of music, in terms of learning, and in terms of even very traditional mediums. There is an awareness, there's a clarity of understanding. And I'm so grateful for that, I, I must say, because in many other contexts where Lala's work has been shown, there has needed to be this active translation and simplification sometimes of what is a radical minimalist visionary practice. And so it felt like when we arrived to this title, it really does resonate with the way she uh, studied calligraphy. And she actually talked about this in an interview again with Maria of how she felt this particular style uh, derives from the circle was thinking also very much of um, Sufi knowledge in terms of also the question of karam, you know. So what you deliver in this life um, and how you work, it also is a reflection on what will circle back to you. And the circle, the round, of course, is a reflection on the moon. The moon is something that we actively think through within the exhibition right from the first gallery, the gradient of the moon the gravitational pull that the moon exerts through which we then come to the wave in its crests. And so this uh, approach, you know, it's, it's, I think, very important perhaps to sort of be in this meditative um, kind of space when thinking about Lala, because only then it feels like the decision making is true to who she was. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really hope that in the round reflects her approach as well to activism, to the gathering and circles of women convening of the need to keep men out at a very specific violent militaristic time in Pakistan and the afterlives of that moment, as well as what it means to think about the curriculum as this circular space. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us on Speaking of Art and talking about Lala Rook on the occasion of her retrospective in the round. The exhibition is on view at Almereja Art Spaces until the 16th of June. Speaking of bringing things full circle, we leave you now with another recording from the APMC archives of a performance by one of Pakistan's great vocalists, Zahida Parveen. <laughs> 